You know, when you have a conversation that provides you with a framework of a problem, maybe one that you may not have even known existed, and it opens your eyes in a whole new way? Yeah, today's one of those conversations. Because it helps look at questions like, do we really know what freedom is? How about liberty? And if we don't know what those concepts really mean, how do we know if we've lost them? And what role does the carceral system have in all of this? Now, I know, I know, I know, this might seem like a lot, but in a year in which we're questioning everything, democracy and America, to name a few things, if we don't know what those concepts really mean, how can we imagine a world full of them? That's one of the questions that today's guest asks and answers through her new book of Greed and Glory, which takes a look at her brother's incarceration in Angola and uses that as a jumping off point to ask some larger questions that in all honesty, we need to be asking ourselves if we really want to be engaged in this fight. One of our favorite frameworks and these ideas is examining the master-slave dynamic, which is really the mindset behind slavery that we need to fully question, examine, and uproot if we want to be rid of this oppressive system once and for all. And maybe then, and only then, can we truly have the equality, life, liberty, and happiness that our founding fathers dreamed of and hoped for, for us. After you listen to this episode, please tell, I don't know, five friends about it. And look at who is doing this work in your community. As always, we'd love to hear what resonates with you. Please do reach out and let us know. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your multi-ethnic Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. I'm Deborah Plant, and I just had the... Uh you know, miraculous kind of uh, opportunity to have another book published. This book is titled A Breed and Glory in Pursuit of Freedom for All. And I'm really pleased to be in conversation with you about this book and the ideas in it. Thank you. I think we'll dive right in then, because I think one of the big overarching points of your book that you start with that I think really welcomes in this view of humanity is how the system doesn't take into account the reality that when, and I'll use air quotes, like the defendant is also someone's brother, son, father, child. When you take that person and you lock them away, you're locking away an entire family. And I found that perspective really profound. Can you talk about the point you make about how incarceration of the individual is actually incarceration of the family? Well, when my brother was taken and taken forever, if you can imagine, you know, forever is kind of an impossible idea. But he was taken and incarcerated at Angola. And basically, the only way I'm going to have a certain kind of relationship with him is that I go there. And so, so much of my time and energy and also resources go there. So I don't live in Louisiana, but whenever I'm there, He's a place for me. I've got to go there. He's home for me, even though he's locked up there. My brother represents home. And so, you know, if he's separate from me, then I've got to cross that gap. He is one of several siblings. And so we all have to do this. My dad had to do this. And thought, mind, emotion, all of this is entangled in this system that has uh, given itself authority to dictate what my brother can or cannot do with his physical self for the rest of his life, according to that sentence. And so, yes, the whole family in some way is locked up because he remains a part of us. 
if we're willing to give him up, if we're willing to forget that we have this family member, then, you know, we can just pretend like, you know, he's not really a part of the family, but he is. And to the extent that you want to keep those relations and you want to keep that intimacy that you have, then you've got to cross that divide. You know, we do it through visits. We do it through letters. We do it through phone conversations. And I would say also to just part of that is like I mentioned resources. I being in a certain position where I could even think about uh, hiring a lawyer to see what can be done to emancipate my brother. So my own life and what I might be doing otherwise has to give way to the fact that I want my brother back, you know. So yeah, the whole family and his family in particular, he's got children, he's got a grandson. And so if you want a relationship with him, you've got to actually put yourself into this abominable system that causes self-justice. Thank you for sharing it. I think that the way that you talked about that, right, and how everyone is basically in Angola with him in certain ways is really, really powerful. And and there was another part of your book where you talk about, you know, the funeral attendants closing the lid of your mother's casket, right? And the finality of her physical existence, right? As your mother set in. And, And for those of us who have experienced death and loss, like that is such a powerful image. But then I thought what was even more powerful as you sort of draw this parallel in certain ways. And you say, when the members of the board closed the case in my brother's appeal, even before they voiced their denial of his request, I got that these people who represent the relentless overreach of the policing powers of the state never intended for me to see my brother again in life as a free person. And to me, sort of building on what we just talked about, there was some level of equating of loss of two family members, right? But in in two different ways. And to your point, you have a choice, I guess, right, to give up your brother entirely and have that be a permanent loss. Can you talk a little bit about this and what the system sort of makes families do as a result? Well, you know, I'm lucky because my brother was incarcerated at Angola in Louisiana. And that means I can, if I have the means, you know, if I have a car, if I have money to buy gas to put in the car and I have the time, then I can get to my brother. So many people don't have that. They don't have a means. They don't have a way. And so a lot of times those who are incarcerated lose contact with their families, you know? And so being able, I feel blessed that we can, you know, before my father passed, my father would visit with my brother twice a month, you know, which was and sometimes they change how often you can visit, depends on everything. And he did that until he passed, 2018. And I have another brother who sort of, now that he is semi-retired, he's also uh, keeping that going in terms of making visiting my brother. Because not only do we need to stay connected to him, we want him connected to us. He belongs to us. The state penitentiary of, of Louisiana it likes to think it claims my brother as its property, uh, but that's my brother. And, you know, so he belongs to us. But there is still a loss that our visits, we try to mitigate that loss. When when I left to go to grad school and whatever else I did, you know, I'm coming back and forth to visit. And 
almost every time I would come home, the first person I'm going to visit is Bobby. You know, I find Bobby if he's working, if he's off work. We go to the restaurant. We sit, we talk, laugh, drink for like hours, you know. And sometimes if it's not that or he's got to work, he says, but come by later because I'm going to cook you some red beans and rice, you know, cook you some gumbo. We're going to have a house party. He would have these house parties for me, you know, and then every, you know, family members get together and then we kind of just have a lot of fun. And that was Bobby. And that's, you know, they took that from us. And, but we tried to maintain, you know, a spirit of celebration in any way in spite of. Uh, So when we go there, we, you know, order whatever it is everybody wants. And we sit and we laugh and talk and spend hours at a time with him. And because the thing about my brother, it's a two-way street. We refuse to give him up. And he has always, just as he was this brother to me, when he was living his life as a free citizen in America, he never stopped being my brother. He always cared about me and everybody else in the family, but I'm just speaking in, in terms of, you know, my relationship, personal, specific relationship with him. And, and it's like, how are you doing and how is your health? And I know you were having some issues with this, but we'll be careful about that. And don't you forget, and you need to go to bed. <laughs> and, you know, he's so caring. And in spite of the years, in spite of the barbed wire fences and whatnot, you know, that's nothing's going to ever touch what we have. Thank you for sharing. That's so powerful in talking about your relationship and the continuing relationship, right? Despite all the barriers, right? Systemically that are put there to sort of sever that relationship the minute he becomes a defendant, the minute he becomes incarcerated. Yeah. So thank you. I really appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit about sort of the system as a whole, right? Because there's a lot of talk right now about whether or not America is a democracy or, you know, even wants to be a democracy anymore and what we need to do, right? If we do believe in this concept of democracy in this country to protect that ideal. And you talk about slavery and the carceral system as being in opposition to true democracy. And I think there might be listeners out there who are thinking like, yeah, slavery, 100% opposition to true democracy, carceral system, I don't know, because, you know, seems like you lock up people of all races. And I think you make an important point when you say injustice is not a black thing, right, in quotes, and locking up white police officers, you know, celebrities, corrupt and misogynistic politicians, corrupt moguls and tycoons, female and male alike, doesn't make America's corrupted justice system less corrupt nor does it make the country's carceral status more acceptable. Making orange the new black doesn't make any of it right. And can you talk a little bit more about this? As I think this is such an important point to consider, especially in light of the fact that we're recording this in 2024, and this argument keeps coming back up. The carceral system is a modern-day reformulation of what has been called the peculiar institution of slavery. And this is problematic. And in relation to democracy, we have to understand, if we can understand why this is such an anti-democratic institution, then we can understand the problem that we're having today with people questioning whether or not we really want to continue to be a democracy. It just speaks to the fact that we never really got to the root of the problem of slavery to begin with. We never got there. Right. And so when we take a look, 
you know, what are the roots of this institution of slavery? And, and what's the taproot of that? And we'll find that what I've learned is that slavery is less about an institution than it is about a mindset. It's about a worldview. And if that mindset is expresses a what I call a master-slave dynamic, and that dynamic continues past the so-called abolition of slavery, then, you know, then what we get are more formulations of this thing called slavery. When we understand the essence of it, then we can begin to see how uh, this, it continues. We say sometimes that the past repeats, but the past doesn't repeat, it continues. And it will continue until there is an intervention and that's who we have to be. We have to be this intervention. And what I've also come to see is that America, you know, we, just like with slavery, we think that that's in the past, many people. And just like the American Revolution, we think that's in the past too. Happened 1776, la la la. But in reality, that revolution is continuing because it hasn't fulfilled its promise, right? I look at revolution in terms of what it encompasses, and it encompasses evolution, right? And so that evolution is our responsibility to move toward a full expression of what the revolution was about in the first place. Liberty, justice, equality, freedom. Did those things just, you know, come fully formed when the Treaty of Paris was signed? No, that was a jumping off point. You know, this is a launch pad, so to speak, so that we move into a full expression of these ideals. We're not there yet, which is why we can keep talking about we don't understand how the incarceration system is different or not different from slavery. If we don't understand what freedom is, we don't understand what liberty is. We've had some liberties, but we're not careful. We're losing what we have because we don't understand it when we see it in another form. And so when it crops up in corporate America, when we see it in our you know, so-called justice system from the Supreme Court on down, and we see how we're losing our rights almost daily, then, you know, if we can see this, then we can see how fragile the idea of liberty is, especially if we don't understand that what we have is a possibility. It was a possibility with the revolution. We have not fully expressed that possibility. My thing at this point is to invite people to join the American evolution, right? Let's evolve these ideals. Let's not just give lip service on certain days of the calendar year. Let's embody them. What does it look like in my life? Uh, what does justice look like? How does my behavior reflect equality and democracy? How do we do that personally? How do we do that communally? How do we do that collectively? That was so powerful. And I really appreciate this expansion of the idea of the master-slave dynamic, because I think, you know, you mentioned, and we see all these headlines about 
Corporate America, should billionaires exist? Do these billionaires exist without the exploitation of their workers, right? We talk about it in patriarchy. And I think for a show called Dear White Women, we need our listeners to understand we are affected by that very same master-slave dynamic as women in a patriarchal state. And I think one thing is worth sort of pondering on that you mentioned, which is we don't even know what liberty looked like. We don't know what freedom truly is, but I picture people in this country still saying my freedoms are being trampled. And and then you look at other countries and you're like, do you really understand? We have both come so far and yet have so far to go. So this idea of the evolution feels really like in motion and like accurate in, in that, but we have to choose which direction we want to evolve in. I mean, I think you have a great quote in there that just a house divided is cannot stand and which side Will the forces evolve into who is going to be louder and be more? Because I always say on the show, I think the forces of hate, the forces of the master, the control tend to be louder right now. And we need more people who stand on the side of liberty, freedom, justice, equality to not take it as granted that that's the right human thing to do. We have to stand up in the way that it's relevant and most true to ourselves because you can unravel the thread and really pull the whole thing apart if we keep up. And so anyway, that was my reflection on on how you described it. And I think that dynamic is really important to keep in mind and see where it shows up in our lives. Absolutely. I think, thank you for that. One of the things, and I, I think because, you know, patriarchy is so well hidden. <laughs> I really like Alan Johnson's discussion of it in The Gender Knot. And he discusses patriarchy not so much as you know some ideology involving men and men against women but as a social structure it's the social structure that we live in and when we look at this thing called slavery and we look at the 13th amendment and it says that slavery is abolished in the united states and its territories except as punishment for crime but if slavery continued in whatever form why is there no discussion of the slave master? Because okay? when we talk about that, then we're going to be talking about patriarchy. And then we'll see how patriarchy enfolds all of these other oppressions, whether it's racial, whether it's sexual, whether it's class, or what it's all there. And it just takes looking at what's in front of us that has been so normalized. And so the effort becomes, how do we move from an unconsciousness about these things to a consciousness and a conscious awareness that allows us to have certain kinds of discussions that will move us toward what our founders and framers and freedom fighters were trying to get us to in terms of the kind of nation that we want. And I think, yes, those who are like standing on the, in the divide, in the divided house, I think have just really been so ill-used and they, for me, don't really express the opposite. They really express the unconsciousness that we're living with. There's so much unconsciousness, so much unawareness. So many things have been covered up and, you know, people have been basically sold a lot of wooden nipples and have been used by those who want to get to wherever they want to get just in disregard of the kind of chaos they create and, a, and the kind of divisiveness that they create. The divisiveness serves them. 
if the people are confused and chaotic and entanglement against each other, then those who want more of the so-called American pie, whether it's through politics or through corporate America, getting more regulations made what to have them be removed so that they can be more exploitative and all of these kinds of things, then this is what is happening. This is what's happening. And then we don't even see how the very attributes of that master slave, and I put that in quotes because I don't believe in it, but this is the paradigm that's operative. They don't see how the features of that paradigm shows up in the workplace, shows up in the home, shows up in the school. And when we don't see it, then it's easy for us to be distracted from it by these cultural wars that these people propagate and, you know, basically drag people into more divisiveness. I really appreciate that. And I think, well, Sarah knows I love a good constitutional discussion and especially around what was the actual intention of the founders and the framers and in those big goals that they had and how, because I think when we narrowly interpret something and there's a lot of interpretation for our own purposes, a lot of times often to create that chaos that you were talking about, we lose sight of those big goals, right? The big ideals. And if the more that we can return to those, right? And the more that we can think about both sides of the relationship, not just the slave, right? But the master, I think you're absolutely right. This is how we have to think bigger and more expansively and also not get distracted by everything, you know, that sort of is thrown at us because it is, it is a very effective political tactic among other things, but also a social tactic as well to keep people in their place, right? And place is heavily air quoted. I also want to go back to what you said about not knowing, right? A lot of stuff being hidden because I can't read your book, right? Without deeply thinking about the history of our country. And I, Sarah knows I love doing that too. And in particular, Louisiana, since, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about Angola and the existence of slavery, right? That continuation that you talk about, the past continues. And it's hallmarks, especially in places that were slave plantations, because, you know, what was so striking to me is your description of the requirement of incarcerated individuals working the fields in Angola sounds exactly like slavery, except, you know, as you were just discussing, you have so many people who say, well, you know, the Civil War ended slavery in the United States, which it obviously did not, neither did Lincoln, is the mindset that has continued. So your book goes into this pretty deeply, but just maybe if you can call out just a few things for our listeners, what's the history, right, that we haven't learned here that was, you know, purposely not taught to us in some ways, sometimes just ignored for other reasons about the creation of Angola and sort of its role in the carceral system? Well, Angola has been said, is built on a slave plantation. And I think to the extent that we don't understand the economic roots of enslavement and forced servitude, then we miss what's happening at Angola and other penal institutions, as well as, I dare say, in corporate America, right? Because it follows the same model. American enterprises are built on the same model as the slave plantation estate. With Angola, we have just a through line from an out-and-out -out slave plantation 
to a penal system on a slave plantation that treats people in that penitentiary like slaves. When they come, first come, as my brother has explained, everybody who first come will come to and go, they're going to work in the fields. And working in the fields means whatever the crop is in rotation at that point in time, that's what you're going to be doing. Or you're going to be outside somewhere doing something, whether it's uh, digging ditches or fixing fences or handling livestock or whatever the case may be. And when you do this, you are not getting paid. You will get paid nothing, right? And so this, your labor, you have, it benefits you not. And if it doesn't benefit you, it can't benefit your family, right? And so the idea of extracting, forcing labor, because you don't have a choice, as my brother pointed out, you don't have a choice. You will, I stand, I correct myself, you have a choice, but that choice means punishment. You're either going to work or you're going to be punished. That's it. And so this is forced servitude. This is what they call hard labor, right? And so you're forced to engage in this this hard labor. My brother talks about getting there. And he did this kind of work for about a year and a half and no pay. And he talked about, you know, digging ditches and trying to stay out of the reach of snakes and all of this kind of thing. There are other reports about imprisoned people not being able to, while they're working during, during a work day, to have the decency, the human decency to be allowed to go and take care of, you know, whatever their needs may be. Just inhumane. And that speaks to one of the main pivotal points about this economic system is that it will commodify you. It will turn you into property. You're not considered a human being. You're considered property. And this is part of that whole mechanism of plantation slavery. You deracinated from your country, from your people, from your continent. You are used as a clog in this mechanism of reproduction. And is your job is to produce and produce and produce until you die. And this is not different from what my brother is facing with a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Work till you die. You know, this is uh, one of the features of the so-called peculiar institution is that it targeted Black people just as the criminal punishment system targets Black people, Black men uh, in particular, Black people in general, because we're all subject to it. It's certainly our youth are not safe from it with all of these detention centers and et cetera, et cetera. It targeted Black people, the peculiar institution. And another feature is that you were targeted and subjugated as a slave, not as indentured servant as such, but as a slave, meaning according to colonial law, that you would be subject to enslavement in perpetuity, durante vita, forever. This is not different from a life sentence without the possibility of parole. It's like, that's it. And then of course, the third, uh, a third feature is this will be the condition of your children, right? So intergenerational slavery is, you. we see it in contemporary America 
as intergenerational incarceration. And so, you know, and I'll just start right there. There's more, but uh, let me just see if I'm going, addressing the things that you want me to look at. I guess one of the important things that I would love to get your thoughts on is how do we change this system to benefit those who, you know, systematically and historically have never benefited from our carceral framework? What are the things that we can do to change how it is? Become aware of it first. We have to become aware. And I would, along with becoming aware, I say one of the most important things we have to do is envision an America that is decarcerated. We can't move into a different America if we can't imagine it. If we can imagine it, then we can begin to look at how do we get there, right? And so there are these kinds of of discussions. There's becoming aware of, say, the abolition amendment in Congress and abolition amendments are valid or things that are on the ballot in certain states like Louisiana, like to take that exceptional clause out of there. Also, I think it's very important that we learn about and support national and local organizations and institutions that are already doing this work. And I think it's very important for us to do that because those organizations are they are protecting us from the overreach of the state. You know, the state yells about the federal government and it doesn't want the overreach of the federal government, but it doesn't mind overreaching into the sovereign lives of the citizens of a particular state. Those organizations help to protect us from that. And we need to support them in whatever way that we can. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And we really appreciate you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to speak with you and to learn what your organization is about. And thank you for the work that you do. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. 